Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Charfus. Today we've got the second part third, if you count the little teaser about Persephone's secret, the second part of my conversation with Scott Reynolds Nelson, author of Oceans of Grain. Scott's book traces the many, many ways in which wheat and human history are intertwined. And if you heard episode one, you'll remember that we agreed to try and divide it up into transport, finance, and empire. Of course, it's really difficult to do that neatly. And so, in transport, we heard a bit about wheat and the growth of railroads. This time, we're back on the Trans-Siberian Railway to see the lasting impact of paying for that railway to be built. Not to mention how the starving horses of the Union Army at Chattanooga ultimately led to the futures market. Before that, though, a whole lot of other ways in which wheat influenced money and finance, starting with the question of who actually owned the wheat that was being traded from the Black Sea to the empires of the Mediterranean. In ancient Greece, there are remnants of contracts that tell us who owned the wheat and how a shipment would be shared between the ship's captain and others. That's pretty clear. Debate has been more about the Roman Empire and whether that was whether all the grain that came into uh, Australia, you know, the, near Rome was belonged to the state or not. And I think my sense is, is, is it's fairly clear that it was owned by people and that that's why the Horia looked like a bank. Um, but there are others, Moses Finley and others, who say, no, this was a command economy uh, and it was entirely owned by the state. But when you say the Horia looked like a bank... <laughs> so the so the horia are the places where grain is stored, but they were also places where you stored valuables, very much like a bank. It, it was clear that the horia were broken up into pieces with the names or imprints of particular families above these little rooms inside the horia, which which held the grain, and. Uh, so that, to me, suggests it's, it's clearly the um, you know a secondary market or a market for this grain, but it, it also was uh, there are contracts and things like that that suggest that people are using they're they're, they're getting a, a loan on this grain that's in their horia very much like you would with a bank, but but the fact that you have something like safe deposit boxes inside a bank uh, suggests how much the horia was like a bank. It was a kind of in, in some ways, the ancestor to uh, to the bank, and there were guards posted outside and everything. Guards outside, and uh, you know, uh, an easy way to bring your wheelbarrows in that carried the grain uh, to its destination. And and you you mentioned then zipping forward um, <laughs> that the Camera de Frumento in Venice. You kind of say suggested that was the first kind of real bank because right. because they were dealing with. Uh, abstractions of grain. Right. And, and when we talk about capitalism, when we talk about Venice and Genoa, I think the important thing there is that the grain becomes more abstract at that point. And so you've got a bill of exchange, which is a representation of a journey. It's going to finally reach its destination, say Venice, on May 1st. And people will hold these bills of exchange because they increase in value over time. That makes it very attractive for 
you know, a, a merchant or a shopkeeper or something like that to hold on to for 20 or 30 days because you know that it's going to increase in value. Um, that, I think, is a, an important kind of starting point if you want to talk about uh, the history of capitalism. And the bill of exchange is sort of like a promise to pay, or is it a promise to deliver? Simultaneously, a promise to pay and a promise to deliver, and it's got the names of the person who's finally responsible for payment and the name of the person who's going to deliver um, those those goods. It's um, it's it's really in some ways a kind of predecessor to mo- to modern paper money. Paper money is is older than this, but appreciating paper money that that you can trade in a bank instantly. Uh, that's really when we're talking about capitalism. Yeah, it's sort of like a treasury bill or something exactly. like that. Exactly, right, yeah. Treasury bill is, is uh, in fact, um, the treasury bill was modeled on the bill of exchange. So uh, it's, and, it's, and you could use a bill of exchange if I was holding one and I needed, I don't know, fabric or, or leather or a new gun or something. Exactly, you could hand over a bill of exchange and have a credit um, you know, with, with a shopkeeper or something like that for it. So it, it operates as a kind of currency, but it also, it's safe, right? Because it's got names on it, it's got a number on it, and um, if someone breaks into your house and takes it, you can advertise and say, you know, don't cash bill number 315 because that's my bill and it was taken from my house. Huh, okay. Yeah. Coming then a, a little closer to now, um, Catherine the Great and and the whole story of getting into Ukraine. What's different about the way she finances um, the the way grain is grown and and traded? So one of the things about Venice and Genoa that's interesting about, and the the sort of genesis, I suppose, of the bills of exchange, is that some some parts of this absolutely come from the Ottoman Empire, right? So there's a Hawali note, which which is something like a bill of exchange. But the Ottoman Empire did not operate with bills of exchange. Just one more thing about Venice. Venice takes Arabic numbers because doing double entry bookkeeping is impossible with Roman numbers. And so, so there's all these Arabic influences in the bill of exchange, but the Ottoman Empire doesn't use them. And when it's uh, delivering uh, food to soldiers in the field, it does so by establishing fortresses which are going to be near where they are. The fortresses are going to hold a bunch of grain for those soldiers. And if extra um, grain is needed, you get gold and silver and you carry it along with you uh, to pay farmers for it. In Russia, what Catherine the Great does is she issues bills of exchange, promises to pay in 30, 60, or 90 days, something that Greek uh, merchants are very familiar with, you know, having, having used them for hundreds of years. And um, it's, it's kind of a gamble on whether uh, Russia is actually going to win this conflict, because you, you'll take the bill of exchange expecting that Russia is later going to dominate this region and is, and is going to pay it. Um, so, so she uses this kind of paper instruments for her her um, her officers do, and if they're captured and they hold these bills of exchange, no one else can use them. So, it's simultaneously, um, you know, a gamble on the future of the Russian Empire, and a kind of brilliant financial instrument that makes it possible to invade. Because. They're not carrying gold and silver, so they're less vulnerable to being captured? Right. 
And so um, the, <laughs> these, the uh, one of the uh, um, documents that's written afterward to explain why the Ottomans lost in the 1700s in, the, in these battles on the Black Sea said these we would capture these generals and capture these Russian officers and they had bills of exchange and we didn't know what to do with them, not really understanding that this that this was a kind of representation of um, a future promise to pay by the Russian Empire. It's this paper money that I think that helps make it possible, paper money and and a, and a kind of gamble on the future that makes it possible for her to invade in, again and again in the her and her the people that followed her in the 17th and 18th and 19th century uh, in the wars against the Ottoman Empire. And she finances the building of Odessa? She does. Uh, she finances the building of Odessa, again, with bills of exchange. She understands that it's a deep... Uh, it's, they're fairly high cliffs, which make it attractive for bringing in large ships. Ships can come in, and it's the Goldilocks zone. It's, you know, you've got fresh water, you've got flat plains behind Odessa, you've got deep, deep black soil, this Chernozem soil, and um, it's, it's kind of the perfect place for growing grain. Odessa, it becomes the place where all sorts of grain uh, is made available to uh, the rest of the world. And over on the other side of the world, in, in the U.S., how is grain financed there? So, so both Catherine the Great... Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin have one thing in common, that they're all reading the physiocrats, uh, this new way of understanding the economy, which is to say that the economy depends ultimately on farmers and don't mess with farmers. That's the big takeaway from the physiocrats. Don't tax them. They're the basis of all the wealth in your economy. Tax everyone else but, but the farmers. So, so that's partly how the United States, um, you know, organizes. It wants to be the Russia of um, of the world. It wants to be in a position like Odessa, where it's providing grain to the rest of the world. But the United States is, uh, before the northern colonies that become the United States, are basically the provisioners for the Caribbean colonies. And this is important. We think about the United States as being important in the 1750s and 1760s. It's not. It's really a place to feed the Caribbean. Caribbean is where all the wealth is being generated. All those high-value, low-weight things, coffee, tobacco, sugar, cocoa, all of those things that are being produced in those Caribbean islands are the really valuable things. And um, most of the Americas is basically providing food for the enslaved people on those islands. How does this um, thrust of, of provisioning the Caribbeans, how and why does that change? Is it due to the westward expansion or the lack of the, the, the sort of slowing down of slavery? What, what's going on? Part of the issue is that in a colonial context, in the imperial context, the British Empire does not need very much of what New York and Philadelphia and Boston have to provide. It's such a long distance to travel that you wouldn't you wouldn't send something as as um, cheap as grain to, all the way to Britain from those places. But what it does uh, become is a place for feeding the Caribbean, and and it's it's really part of how slavery works in the Caribbean that. It's it's not just that you're have somebody standing over you with a whip. The food is coming from the plantation. The plantation is getting the food in in wheat barrels, flour barrels, and uh, it's it's providing that food. Starving people is kind of one of the ways in which slavery operates. Um, the Caribbean is never really self-supporting. It, it needs someplace else to get its food. When 
the French Revolution happens after the American Revolution, and then wheat fields are burning all across Europe, then things start to change. Then uh, Odessa becomes more important as a, as a provisioner, and the U.S. becomes an, import, an important provisioner, not necessarily for Britain itself. Uh, it does feed Spain and Italy to a certain extent in the in Napoleonic Wars, but primarily provisioning ships. Uh, once the War of 1812 happens and the U.S. is kind of at war with Britain and that, that's concluded, then things are different. And Britain has decided that it, do, it wants no more grain from the United States. And in fact, it's going to block grain from the United States that goes to the Caribbean. And so it basically forces in 1819, it forces all of the grain that comes from the United States. If it's going to come to the Caribbean colonies, it's first got to go all the way up to Canada, <laughs> then uh, move to a British boat and ship all the way to the Caribbean. Uh, this seems like a great idea, a way of kind of uh, thumbing Britain's thumbing its nose at this newly um, liberated United States. It's terrible for the Caribbean, though, because it doubles prices uh, for food. Uh, it's around this time, 22, 23, 24, 1822, 22, 24, that British Caribbean, um, what's called the West India interest, decides that this is too expensive. And they start to divest themselves from slavery in the Caribbean. So to a certain extent, the end of slavery in the Caribbean has something to do with the fact that it gets suddenly much more expensive to feed uh, the Caribbean. And then, of course, there are also all these slave revolts in, uh, connected with food as well. Yeah. Um in, in Europe, um, a lot of the poorer farmers, um, especially, are, are eating potatoes. And then 1845, the blight right. hits, I mean, famously Ireland, but also the low countries, mm -hmm. much of Europe. Does that increase the demand for wheat, and how's that supplied? Absolutely. When... Uh, Phytopteria infestans, which is the thing that, that uh, co-evolves with the potato and it finally gets across to Europe and eats up uh, so many potatoes in the 1840s, it forces Europe to, it's, it's a kind of come to Jesus moment for Europe in relation to its food supply because poor people are going hungry, there are, um, there are riots in, in Poland, there's conflict in Germany about, uh, about food, and so it's around this time that Britain and then the rest of Europe decide to lower tariff barriers to allow grain in. It had stopped it in the, from the 1820s to the 1840s or tried to block it with, with tariff walls. It lowers those barriers because to avoid revolution. That's that, frankly how they put it, that um, the revolutions of 1848 have uh, directly follow from the potato uh, blight. So... That that changes the this it changes Europe basically fundamentally because now wheat it becomes poor people's food, Odessa and the Black Sea generally become the breadbasket of Europe, and it it not only feeds Europe but it feeds primarily European cities where which are have those deep ports that are closest to that grain and so it goes to Livorno and then out from Livorno all over Europe. The world changes drastically with free trade, and Britain uh, famously pats itself on the back for being the inventor of free trade. But we should rather <laughs> we should rather thank um, Phytopteria infestans, the the thing that uh, you know invades the potato and, and makes it absolutely necessary for everyone in Europe to uh, eliminate its tariff barriers. And yeah, the world really does drastically change. The thing that changes Europe too, and and I would argue is the most important 
fundamental feature about what becomes industrialization is that as food gets cheaper, particularly in, in, in cities, industrialization follows it. And we see a tremendous surge of growth and economic development after 1845 um, because of cheap food. And in the United States, how does the Civil War affect the way wheat is traded? And I mean, the, the old Napoleonic army marching on its stomach. I mean, these are huge armies, the, the, right. the, the Confederacy and, and the Union forces. How are they being provisioned? Initially, the Union army is being provisioned by uh, merchants who can provide 10,000 bushels of oats you know, on October 1st and deliver them to uh, a staging post. Uh, that's initially how it works, and that's, that's the way every army in the past had provisioned itself is by very large merchants making possible uh, very large deliveries of food. But by 1864, the latter part of 1863, what we see is um, a, uh, a sort of complicated um, deal that breaks down in, in which there's, there's all sorts of theft inside the Union Army. There is The Union Army is sur- surrounded at Chattanooga. Uh, by the Confederacy, and there's the danger that they will have to surrender Chattanooga because of the lack of food. The solution to this problem becomes the futures market. And the way in which the futures market solves the problem is it breaks up that contract from one or two or three contractors to a hundred or 200 contractors, each of them providing a 1,000 bushels of oats or a 100 bushels of oats in very, very small, regular size with a very particular grade and a set delivery date. So it's a little bit like the old bill of exchange that's used in Venice and Genoa, but it's much more regular. It's not 272 uh, bushels of wheat. It's 100 or 1,000 bushels of oats or something like that that's, that's coming in. You break that up into multiple pieces. There are many people that can come up with that amount of grain, deliver it to Chicago Board of Trade, uh, to, to a grain elevator, and then that collectively can feed the army. But oats, you, you switch to oats. I switch to oats, yeah. Um, because the horses are more important than the soldiers? Absolutely. <laughs> well, oats, oats are, also, of course, also food. Um, but uh, the oats were the serious problem. The oat prices had doubled, basically, during the Civil War. And we're going to double again uh, by 1864. And so it's initially the first trades on the Chicago Board of Trade are for oats, um, basically to feed starving horses in Chattanooga. And it works so well that by 65 and 66, you know, once the war is over, graded wheat becomes uh, accessible. And so breaking, breaking up the futures contract into little bitsy pieces is important. What's also important is there's a standard grade. So it's not this shipment of, of coffee or oats or wheat that's coming in. It's any shipment of this grade that's 100 bushels or 1,000 bushels that's coming in. And... The buyer is not obvious. In a bill of exchange, the buyer is pretty obvious because the buyer is going to pay this amount. In a bill of exchange, the last person to hold the bill of exchange is the one who can expect that grain to be delivered to him in Chicago. That's very important for the Union Army because it can disguise its need for oats. 
so that you don't realize that you're buying. No one uh, knows that it's the Union Army that desperately needs those oats and is willing to pay almost anything for it. Um, people in Chicago know, but those merchants, the dozen or so merchants who had been providing uh, food for the Union Army didn't know that there was a way that they were, there was an end run going around them in these little regularized futures contracts. So they couldn't gouge the government. <laughs> I couldn't gouge the government. And there's a bunch of other things that follow from the futures contract that nobody really expects. Like when you divide it up into little pieces like that and you don't know who the buyer is, it makes it more like money. So you can take five futures contracts into a banker and say, look, I've got this co- these five contracts for May 1st delivery of my grain. Um, I need $300 quick here. I'm handing you my bills of exchange uh, and I'll take them back before, you know, before May 1st. And a banker looks at them, looks at the price of oats and says, all right, $300 is yours. So it becomes like uh, much more like currency than the old bill of exchange. Uh, Monday through Friday, you can take it to the Chicago Board of Trade and turn it into to money instantly. And so it's very, very attractive. It really becomes like money, and it becomes like a bank. The Chicago Board of Trade becomes the big, one of the biggest banks in the world. There's a lot of talk about the futures market um, today. There, there always has been. But are there benefits... Um, uh, uh, overall, is it is it a good thing to have a futures market, or are you better off, I don't know, having something like bills of exchange? Oh, the, I think a futures market is a really important and really valuable thing. I think some of the things about a futures market, if you think about what's happening now, the price of grain doubling or almost doubling uh, the day after Putin's invasion in February of uh, 20, 24th, is... Um, Farmers instantly notice that the price of grain has increased, uh, almost doubled the Chicago price, and will change what they plant from corn to wheat or soy to wheat. And that's very important. It provides very, very quick signals to farmers. Um, the only people that could really respond, in fact, to this loss of grain connected with, a, with the blockade of Ukraine um, were people in uh, North Dakota and much of Canada. It's a very, very northern part of the, the plains because they could plant in uh, March for May or June or something like that. And no, no one else could, could do that just based on the seasons and, you know, overwintering and all that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's crucial that we have it. And there, uh, you know, I don't always agree with neoclassical economic, economics, but one of the things that they have shown is that prices very less when you have a futures market, that the band shrinks because um, a futures market is, is, is a sort of opportunity for people to adjust to uh, re- relatively small changes um, relatively quickly. And, um, and, and you see the price of uh, all sorts of commodities regularize. We, we talked in the last episode about how the Trans-Siberian Railroad was, <laughs> was financed by French widows and orphans, or uh, probably right. not. But this, this I find slightly strange that mm-hmm. that Russia doing this huge, huge project somehow gets France to pay for it. <laughs> right. Well, France has uh, an overabundance of capital that's connected again to these consumption accumulation cities. When you have these cities, they have the deep ports. The grain is coming in very cheaply. It's cheaper to buy food in the city than it is in the countryside. It, t- it tends to just draw people like a magnet into these major cities. And um, 
France in particular has uh, you know, just collects a lot of people, and those people need to invest in something because they're in a city, right? You don't buy land in the way that you previously might have in, in France. And France was a nation of smallholders. People had small plots of land that they would save or buy to, to pass on to their children or something like that. If you're in Paris <laughs> living in a flat, um, you know, the land that you're in might be worth something. The house might be worth something, but it's, it's not going to be enough to support a family. And so increasingly those people have to figure out a way of, you know, investing their money. And that's when these new banks, Credit Lyonnais, uh, Credit Foncier, uh, come on the scene um, uh, under Louis Napoleon. And they say, we'll invest at 8% somewhere, and we'll make sure that you get 4% uh, here. Or we'll offer you these Russian bonds to buy directly, and you'll hold them, and and they'll collect at 8%. And we'll only charge you 1% or 2% uh, to get. So Increasingly, Britain mostly invests in its own empire. France, that's less the case. And there's a much more buying of bonds at other places. All these banks are chasing 8%. And one thing that pays 8% is a somewhat speculative railroad that's by Russia that's going to go all the way to Manchuria and provide a deep water port for Russia and allow it to sell grain to the rest of the world. You could argue that Russia leverages its own future on this very long-term plan to build a you know multi-million ruble railway. It's incredibly expensive. Some of the uh, people who are connected with the British Empire, uh, Russian Empire in 1905 say that once Japan takes Manchuria, that Russia will never pay those loans back. The Russian Empire, as they see it, is done. The Russian Empire cannot possibly make these payments. And if they can't make these payments, they can't ever borrow money again. The Russian Empire will collapse. The people are saying this in 1905, uh, 1906, after Japan takes Manchuria back. That this whole complicated, highly leveraged enterprise to provide 8% returns to um, investors all over the world, but mostly in France, that this, this this will never work. So is France responsible for the Russian Revolution? (laughs) Well, uh, that's not what you... I was actually uh, at the... Where was I? In... um uh, it's the Institute for Social Sciences uh, in in uh, Paris, and I gave a couple of talks, including one at, at in um, uh, economics department. Uh, a couple of people came up afterwards because they were very angry about their great grandparents. They said they lost everything in um, the collapse of the uh, Russian Empire when uh, the Bolsheviks take over and say they're not going to pay those bonds back. Um, yeah, so there's still some hard feelings, I have to say, in France about those payments, but I think. Realistically, that this this entire enterprise, speculative enterprise to get to Manchuria, was not going to happen once once they lost Manchuria, and the ability to make money on this railroad was, um, I would say, fifty years, maybe a hundred years down the road. It, it, there was there was no possibility of it if it's ever working without Manchuria uh, in the mix. So. Um, you know, we think about bonds as being minor things, but in a way, bonds are crucial to the sort of integrity of empire. They're literally the mark, the bond of the sovereign. And if the sovereign cannot uh, be trusted to pay those things back, then the the empire is finished. 
to a certain extent. It can't fight any more wars if it can't issue bonds, which it needs to buy troops. It can't, um, it can't be an empire anymore. And I think we're starting to see this in Russia right now, just as we saw in Russia in 1905, is that from 1905 forward, the clock is ticking on this empire because it cannot pay for this Trans-Siberian Railroad that, uh, that it's invested other people's money so heavily in. And when that happens, when you have sovereign default, serious default, then the future of that uh, nation, that empire, is, is a, becomes a serious question. Scott Reynolds Nelson, author of Oceans of Grain. One thing I didn't include was the role of commodity speculators, which I suspect would take an entire episode. There's long been a distrust of speculators, and in 1909, D.W. Griffith directed a film called A Corner in Wheat. The film's based on a book that's based about a ruthless, real-life speculator. No spoilers from me, but I think it's worth a quarter of an hour of your time. I'll put a link in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. Are speculators always a bad thing? Well, that's a subject for another day, as is Empire next time, which you know will also contain elements of transport and finance. Of course, I'd love to know what you think of the series so far. Drop me a note Jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or find me on Twitter at eatpodcast or Instagram eatthispodcast. For now, though, from me and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.